Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we renew our prayer this morning that you be here with us in this place, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. One of the issues, one of the many, many issues with having such an industrious and dedicated director of music, and in fact living in a house with her, is that she asks me to pick the readings well in advance so that she can select and rehearse appropriate music to accompany them. And the result of that is that you sometimes end up with what we have this morning, the usual last Sunday of Epiphany Transfiguration reading from Mark chapter 9, a whole set of carefully selected hymns that go with and support that reading beautifully, and a preacher who just decided this week that he desperately wants to preach on the reading from 2 Kings. Now, thankfully, Jesus himself gave me the excuse I need to preach on both passages this morning. If you'll recall, in Luke chapter 24... After Jesus is raised from the dead, a couple of disciples encounter him on the road to Emmaus. And during the long walk that they share together, he gives them the standard Christ-approved way to read the Bible. Here's what Luke records. This is Luke 24, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So I am in good company this morning. Jesus would want to read 2 Kings as being about him and perhaps even about the truth about what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration too. So let's do it. 2 Kings is, spoiler alert, the follow-up to 1 Kings. Uh, Two books which tell one story. They pick up basically at the death of King David and his handing off of the kingdom to his son Solomon. And then they follow Solomon running the kingdom into the ground. He marries hundreds of women for political purposes. He accumulates great personal wealth. He incorporates the worship of idols and false God's into Israel's religious life. He even reinstitutes slave labor in his kingdom to support his lavish building projects. By the time he dies, Solomon has actually become more like Pharaoh than like his father David. Now, by the time the main characters of our story, Elijah and Elisha, enter the narrative, the kingdom has completely gone down the drain. It has been split into two into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and king after king has failed to be a faithful leader for God's people. But it is during this time that God raises up prophets. 
Specifically, the two that we read about this morning, Elijah and Elisha, are prophets to the northern kingdom. These prophets are men called to speak to the people, often to the kings and rulers, on behalf of God. They're invested with the authority to tell the nation when and where they are in violation of the covenant and to call out idolatry and injustice. They remind the kings of God's law and beg them to obey it and warn them about the consequences of disobedience. In other words, the prophets challenge Israel to repent and follow their God faithfully. That's the prophetic job description. And the story we have before us today from 2 Kings chapter 2 is the transfer of power and authority from one prophet to another, from Elijah to his disciple Elisha. As we read, we get this sort of hilarious back and forth between these two men. Elijah says he's going on to some place and tells Elisha to stay behind. But Elisha refuses, saying each time, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And then when they get to the place where they're going, the people gathered there remind Elisha that his beloved master is about to be taken away from him. And again, Elisha responds the same way each time. Yes, I know. Be silent. Now finally, after performing this miracle reminiscent of Moses, parting the Jordan River by smacking it with his rolled up mantle, Elijah himself turns to his disciple turns to Elisha and says, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. And then Elisha says, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And after promising Elisha that he will get his wish, if he sees his master taken away, a chariot and horses of fire come down in a whirlwind and take Elijah up to heaven. And we know that the mantle of prophetic leadership has been passed from one to the other because in the verses immediately following our reading, Elisha literally takes up the mantle that Elijah used to strike and split the Jordan and with it does the exact same thing. So Elisha has literally taken up the mantle of prophetic leadership and acted out in a prophetic way. So what we have here in our reading is a pretty straightforward historical incident, right? The transfer of leadership from one of God's prophets to another, set in the middle of the long decline of God's chosen people. But what was it that Jesus said on the road to Emmaus that all the scriptures concerned him? So that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at this simple historical story again, and now read it as it might point us to Jesus and his good news for sinners. And to accomplish that, I'd like to focus this morning on Elisha's request for a double share of Elijah's spirit, and then see how that can help us interpret what happens on the mountaintop of Jesus's transfiguration. Okay, so... When Elijah asks Elisha what he can do for him before he's taken away, Elisha asks, like I said, for a double share of Elijah's spirit. What does this mean? 
Well, I don't think it's until we sort of pull back and look at the entire scope of the two ministries of Elisha and Elijah that we can tell what is meant by this double share. Because interestingly, there are seven miraculous acts attributed to Elijah, most famous probably being his contest with the priests of Baal, where they have this fire-making contest. They say, you tell your God to set a fire, I'll tell my God to set a fire, and whoever wins is the real God, and only Yahweh, God of the people of Israel, can start fire from nothing. This is one of the seven miracles attributed to Elijah. I'll give you one guess as to how many miracles are attributed to Elisha in the context of First and Second Kings. Fourteen. Who would have known? So when Elisha asks Elijah for a double share of his spirit, it doesn't seem like he's asking him for twice his charisma or even twice his faithfulness. It's more like he's asking him for twice as much opportunity for God's power to work through him. And as recorded in the book, God's power does just that, allowing Elisha to perform 14 miraculous feats as compared to Elijah's seven. He has been given this double share of Elijah's access to the Spirit of God. And these miraculous feats are desperately needed, aren't they? Because remember, Israel is falling apart at the seams. Literally, the kingdom is divided, split into two. The north, where Elijah and Elisha are ministering, not one of 20 successive kings that reign during this book will meet the criteria of faithfulness that the book sets out. Worship of Yahweh alone, faithfulness to the covenant that he made with his people, and working to rid Israel of idolatry. The northern kings get a score of zero for 20. It's almost as if Elisha has seen Elijah spend his entire life in ministry relentlessly calling these kings to repentance and faith over and over and over again and has seen it just not working. And so he says, you know what? I'll take a double share of your spirit. Maybe then we'll be able to get these kings to repent and return to the Lord. And he gets the double share. He performs double the miracles. And he continues to call the kings to repentance. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Ultimately, though these two prophets were faithful men, obedient to God's calling on their lives, accurately communicating his law to the people to whom they had been sent, and even with 21 miraculous acts between them, they were unsuccessful in turning Israel back from apostasy and idolatry. In 2 Kings 17, God appoints the Assyrians to meet out his judgment on the people's unfaithfulness. And that overwhelming nation swoops down into this northern kingdom, takes over the capital city of Samaria, and removes God's people into exile. And now, many years later, 
Elijah is one of the two men meeting and talking with Jesus on the mountaintop. Mark chapter 9, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Mark, you'll note, inserts a little aside about Peter's suggestion that they make three dwellings, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. He says that Peter, quote, did not know what to say. Now, Luke, in his telling of the transfiguration story, is even more explicit. Luke says that Peter didn't know what he was saying. So it's clear that in his suggestion that these three men be sort of treated as something like equals, three men, three dwellings, Peter is making some kind of mistake here. But what is it? Well, Elijah's life and the life of Elisha that followed it can help us understand. Because Elijah is on that mountaintop as a representative. He represents the prophets. Similarly, Moses represents the law. And finally, Jesus represents the gospel. So Peter's excitement is understandable, right? The, the three ways that God communicates to us, the law, the prophets, and the gospel, all together, all right here. It's amazing. But Peter, we read, didn't know what he was saying. He was forgetting about Elijah's story. Remember, that Elijah and Elisha, despite their faithfulness and dedication and their 21 miracles between them, could not keep Israel from apostasy. They could not stave off exile. And Moses is just the same. In fact, it's Moses, the law of God, that Elijah and Elisha are using to try to keep the nation in line. That's what they're reminding the kings of when they're begging them to repent and return to covenant faithfulness. But it just didn't work. The law and the prophets can tell people what to do. They can remind people of God's holy and righteous calling on their lives. They can call people to repentance, but they cannot in and of themselves save. They can't actually change wicked hearts. Elijah and Elisha proclaiming Moses faithfully for two generations couldn't save Israel. Elijah the greatest of the prophets who would commune on the mountaintop with the transfigured Jesus couldn't save. Elisha, a prophet with twice the access to God's miraculous power, couldn't save. Only Jesus can save. And then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice, this is my son, 
the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. They saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Only Jesus saves. I know that sounds obvious, but it is not. Only Jesus saves. That is our announcement. We shout it from the heights of the hills, from the depths of the sea, the tallest building in the biggest city, and the highest hill on the furthest countryside. Only Jesus saves. Even Moses and Elijah couldn't save. So it's for darn sure that our obedience, our dedication, or our good works, or anything else in heaven, on earth, or under the earth can save. Only Jesus saves. The story of Elijah and Elisha points us to Jesus by showing us that nothing short of Jesus can get the job done. These prophets who called out kings, defeated pagan priests, healed leprous generals, could not keep their nation on the path of faithfulness. Only Jesus saves. Moses, who came down from Mount Sinai glowing with the reflected light of the holiness of God, could not keep his people from building a golden calf. Only Jesus saves. All your efforts to save yourself will only lead to death. But Jesus, by dying, defeats that death. Jesus, by dying, gives you new life. Jesus, by dying, saves. When the cloud lifted from the Mount of Transfiguration, there was only Jesus. This is my son, the beloved, said Almighty God. Listen to him. So now listen to Jesus' words spoken to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Only Jesus saves. And Jesus can save you. And the miracles are just beginning. Jesus saves you every day. God's mercies are new every morning. We, the disobedient, find our hearts broken and changed by the incredible mercies of God shown us in Jesus Christ. We, the disobedient, are now clothed in him and find ourselves, by his power, actually doing the kind of things that Moses and Elijah were trying to get us to do. 
Repent. Return to the Lord. But it is only the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that can melt and then turn a hardened heart. Jesus in the gospel actually gives the righteousness and the faithfulness to which the law and the prophets can only point. So lay down your attempts to save yourself. Either lay them down again this morning or lay them down for the first time. Only Jesus saves. Recite the creed with us. Confirm this eternal truth. Only Jesus saves. Come to the table. Eat and drink Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for you. Only Jesus saves. Sing with us. Pray. Rejoice. Only Jesus saves. And his saving work is accomplished for you right now. For you, only Jesus saves. Thanks be to God. Amen.